Welcome to the That Don't Fit podcast, a podcast where we're dedicated to talking about life and life's real issues that cross racial and generational lines. My name is Jared Torrance, and I'm here with my co-host, Andy Farmer. We're friends, we're pastors, we're wanting to help people talk and process life in a crazy world. Welcome to the conversation. We're going to be talking about, again, we're talking about themes in conversations on, on uh, race and ethnic harmony. And we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about humility. There was a time when many Christians could go through life never having to deal with difficult conversations about race. Some could simply avoid it because their lives didn't really confront them with the need to have a conversation about it. But those times, I believe, we all know have clearly changed. Uh, my guess is that you're here on this live stream because you are either having or want to have conversations about race. It may be with someone from a different ethnic background or maybe someone from a different generation of your own ethnic background, maybe somebody in your family, maybe somebody at work, maybe somebody here in the church. Like it or not, circumstances in our world have forced the issue into conversation and a lot of people have something to say. So, Race conversations are really hard. You've probably noticed that. Into this pot we call race conversations go all kind of personal experiences, opinions, factoids, influences, ruminations, prejudices. We stir all that together and cook it up in our own stout concoction of ideas that others need to imbibe. We sort of feel like we've created something that people need to take in. But when we serve up our personal recipe for race in conversations or text strings or social media interactions, we shouldn't be shocked when people spit it back out at us. Something that makes imminent sense to us is not tasteful to them. So I've always wrestled with how to approach conversations on race. I've settled on a very simple principle that helps me engage in constructive dialogue, and it's simply this. Humble yourself. Practice humility. So what is humility? Before we talk about what it is, let me address how the idea is being deployed in culturally derived race theories these days. Reading on race, you'll hear the term racial humility, which sounds like a great idea. But the idea of racial humility is that dominant culture people usually understood as white, have nothing to offer a race conversation because they have not ever meaningfully dealt with the issue. You could just as easily talk about gender humility or social humility or economic humility or class humility. The idea of humility there is that dominance, however that's understood, produces blindness, ignorance, and disqualification in conversations. The job of dominant culture people in race conversations, according to this idea of, of uh, racial humility, is to shut up and listen to minorities. That is their role in conversation. To put it simply, racial humility is assigning the role of ignorant student to white people in race conversations. But is this humility? Now let me say this. This idea 
comes from real life experience. Ethnic minorities, particularly black and brown people, are constantly confronted with how little white people tend to know and understand about being non-white. We need to acknowledge that. But this idea also rests on a fundamental flaw, that humility can be demanded of one person or one group from another person or another group. This kind of racial humility should be more accurately called racial submission or racial capitulation. There's really no humility in this concept of racial humility at all. So let's not go there for our understanding of humility. We have actually something much greater to employ. And what we have will achieve far better ends. And that's biblically understood humility. Biblical humility is a trait that in people that is highly valued by God. In Isaiah, we read, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And in the well-known words of Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Jesus himself said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly. In other words, I am humble in heart. A key text for me in this is 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. So what is humility? Now, grammatically, the biblical words that tend to develop this idea of humility, and there are a number of them, are associated with the ideas of affliction and self-denial. The idea behind all this seems to be humility is not something we will ever come to naturally. You won't meet a naturally humble person. If you see a humble person, it's either because circumstances, affliction has made them humble, or they have made it a goal of life to deny themselves for the sake of humility. If you see a person who's humble, there's a story behind how they got there. Humility isn't a gift. It isn't a personal trait. It can't be demanded from somebody like a debt. Humility comes from the overflow of a well-tended soul fixed on the Lordship of Jesus. True humility takes the enforced racial humility of current critical theories and makes it unnecessary, even bizarre. You see, a humble person uh, assumes he or she 
is ignorant, doesn't fully understand. A humble person assumes that they need to seek and learn from others. A humble person assumes a posture of listening. They don't have to be told. They don't need to be put in their place because they seek that place on their own. That's just what humble people do. And if they fail, which they do, they repent. And they seek humility afresh. There are some essential themes on the biblical virtue of humility found in bite-sized form in this passage. And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at three key themes and how they can help us in race conversations. The first one is this. We want to look at the appropriateness of humility. Peter says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, we have a gigantic cosmic piles of reasons to be humble. Humility begins with acknowledging that there is one God and we aren't Him. The only person in the cosmos who has no reason to be humble is God, the exalted one. We, therefore, start from a posture of not God, which is the eternal state of humility. God does not oppose the proud because they irritate Him. He opposes the proud because pride is treasonous stupidity in our souls. The only answer for the stupidity of pride is humility. Pride is the single biggest problem in race conversations, and we all bring it to the table. We hone our arguments. I don't know if this describes you, but it certainly describes me. We hone our arguments in these eternally, internal debates that we have with ourselves. Debates, actually, that you and I know we always win. We have seeds of individual experiences that we cultivate into orchards of generalizations about people who are different than us. We grow our crop of pride by finding books and blogs and podcasts and anything to fertilize our prejudice, anything that, that makes what we say seem to have validity. Then we try to sell our crop of pride in the marketplace of race conversations. We shouldn't be shocked when no one buys our fruit. This text helps us see if we enter a conversation like that, more than just the other person's disagreement will be against us. You don't want to double down in a race debate by inviting God to oppose you in the process as well. Better to be confident in how much we don't know and understand. Better to humble ourselves, then at least we'll be aligned with God's grace and not with his opposition. In fact, the interesting thing in this text, he says, be kind, be humble toward one another. In other words, there's no such thing as a humble hermit. Humility implies it only works if it's directed toward the people. First of all, God, we humble ourselves before the Lord and he will raise us up. But then he says here, humble yourself toward one another. Humility must work itself out relationally. Withdrawing from people to protect our humility is not being humble at all. We must enter, engage with people 
to exercise humility. The second thing we want to look at is the approach of humility. Peter says to clothe yourselves with humility, humble yourself by clothing yourself with humility. The language Peter's using draws directly from his own experience. If you remember back in John, as the disciples were taking the Last Supper with Jesus in the upper room, Peter witnessed Jesus, the Savior of the universe, the divine Holy One. He watched Jesus humble himself and wrap himself in the towel of a servant to wash Peter's own dirty feet. Peter arrogantly refused to have Jesus wash his feet. Jesus rebuked him, telling Peter that if he didn't wash his feet, Peter would have no part of him. That's what Peter remembers here. That's what Peter goes back to. He remembers Jesus the Master humbling himself, clothing himself. And he uses those very same words. Wrap that towel around yourself, Peter says, as humility. The clear point is that humility won't fall down from us from heaven and suddenly baptize us into some kind of a warm, agreeable state in spite of our personality. God will oppose our pride in race conversations because he is not interested in making us great or right or understood or validated in other people's eyes. But he'll help us when we approach rage conversations with a humble posture because we give, we are modeling Jesus. Philippians 2, that whole section that Jim preached about uh, back in, in, uh, during the holidays on, on, on Jesus and his humility. That's so we can model him. And that's what is always the most important thing. The great black preacher of our generation, John Perkins, has said, if Jesus is truly our master, then humility and brokenness will become doable. And brothers and sisters, it is doable. We can do it. It doesn't require a heavy theological study. It doesn't require years and years of being a Christian. It doesn't require a lot of gifting. It simply requires us being willing to clothe ourselves in humility. So doing humility then leads us to a third insight, the application of humility. Paul, Peter exhorts Christians to humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Jerry Bridges once wrote, humility is a fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of his ministry in our hearts. But this ministry does not come without deliberate, conscious effort on our part. The Spirit does not make us humble. He enables us to humble ourselves. Humility is, it's work. It's hard work. And it never seems to feel natural. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've never felt natural trying to be humble. It always feels like I'm trying to do something that doesn't fit who I am. It's never comfortable. But we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. 
Now, we tend to read that like this. You see, we, we don't really want to humble ourselves, but God has to use his big old hand to press us down to make us humble. And so humility is God pressing us down to make us humble. But that's not what's going on here. Remember, humility can never be forced on someone. Humility can't be forced on us by God. It has to be embraced. We can do humility with others because Jesus did humility with us. He allowed his father to press him down with his almighty hand, even to death on the cross, so that by the same almighty hand, God might raise us up to new life. To be under the mighty hand of God means we humble ourselves with the confidence that God is for us and that he's lifting us up as we lower ourselves. Lemuel Haynes, the great black preacher of our founding generation, preached, the humble Christian will feel his own weakness and insufficiency to do anything of himself and will see that all his sufficiency is of God and his faith and hope will rest on his power and providence to do all, which will be a motive to diligence. We need diligence. We can't pursue ethnic harmony as a people if we kind of gin ourselves up for that one conversation to prove we had one and then survive it and then try to hope never to have to have another one of those again. Anything worth doing requires diligence. We want to grow and change, not just as individuals, but as a church. If we're all diligently pursuing humility, then the promises from God of more grace and greater wisdom and a greater display of God's glory, because that's the idea behind us being raised up and exalted, those will create a safe place for race conversations and real change in the midst of a proud and divided world. Race humility as a cultural demand will not advance the cause of ethnic harmony. But true humility of the biblical kind can and will. If we, the church, do the work humility requires. So what can you do? Friends, brothers, sisters, to create those safe places for racial healing. Culturally constructed racial humility has this four-word command that must be followed in any race conversation. Minority people should be saying it. Majority people should be obeying it. And that statement is this, four words. Shut up and listen. There's no humility if that's what's required for racial humility. Let me instead offer you some better four-word sentences that we can all use. Any of these, 
if any of these are appearing in the conversations you're trying to have, then you're probably doing the work of putting on humility. And I want to commend you for it. More importantly, God will take notice. So if you're in a conversation, you should hope that these kind of sentences, four words, can come out of your mouth. I didn't know that. That's just, that's just my perspective. Would you, would you consider this? That's a great point. You've really helped me. Thanks for being patient. Have you felt respected? Can we pray together? These are the words, and this is the work of true humility in racial conversations. There is, there's a lot of conversations where you can start to feel it go south. You can start feeling your emotions engage in an unhelpful way. You can feel uh, humility slowly dying away. You start to feel offended and pride starts creeping up. Um, what do you guys do when that starts to happen? When you start saying, I was like, uh-oh, I can feel myself engaging in this in a different way. Like what, what do you do in, in, in those moments, in those conversations? Well, usually there's, uh, there's something about what they've said that's, that's kind of leading me to that place. So one of my go-tos, and now I'm kind of putting this out there, so if I do this to you, you know why I'm doing it. Uh, so don't hold me, hold it against me. But one of the things I'll do is I'll, I'll say, when you said that, this, that made me actually assume this, or I, I felt this way when you said that. What, what were you aiming for in that? You know, and a lot of times when you give someone the opportunity to walk something back, uh, they do because they realize that they could phrase it in a, in a maybe a more charitable way or in a way where they realize uh, it's a little less offensive, um, but get more specifically to what they're looking for. So that's, that's one of my go-tos. Um, you know, another is, is to acknowledge if I am struggling with the person to let them know and not just kind of respond out of that. You know, so like you'll, you, you, you'll be tempted to fire back at them. You, maybe it's like a fact or maybe it's like uh, an experience that you have that like comes to your mind whenever you're thinking about um, the racial divide of our nation. And it just comes out of this kind of nasty place of your heart. And so, so instead of like actually going to that thing, just describing what's happening in my heart really helps because it, it's a, an act of, of humility and confession, really where the Holy Spirit will, will help me. And there's even a self-awareness that then happens in my heart uh, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I am. I'm getting more angry. This is not going to help the conversation. So those are some of the things that I've done. That's good. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I had a counseling class. A lot of things that you would do sort of in counseling can really be helpful too, which, again, is like, okay, now people are going to notice if I, I'm talking to them. <laughs> you didn't do that. Um, but... Took a counseling class with Ed Welch one time, and, and, and he was just commenting, and he just said, when in doubt, edit yourself. Like, you know, because there's a lot of things coming. You know, somewhere deep in your heart, processing in a very weak way through your brain. Your brain isn't really bringing any discernment. You just want to say it. And, uh, 
And so everything wants to come out. And, and you see that sometimes where you see people going back and forth. You see it, you see it on social media. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay, wow, there's just a lot being said here. And, uh, and nobody's taking time to realize, is this really helpful? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times what I'm trying to do is, okay, what's going to be helpful here for this moment in the conversation? I, I want to steward the moment, mm -hmm. not... Uh, I don't care ultimately where we end up. To me, that's a big part of it. I just realized I don't care. I don't need to get you someplace, and I don't think I need to have you take me someplace. I want to have a successful conversation because I can walk away from a successful conversation and change over time. That sense that I've got to tell you this because either you've got to really get me or I've got to change you yeah. is what drives us toward arrogance, I think. And so to me, a lot of it is just, okay, we don't need to do that. We, what we need to do is get to the other end of this yeah. and realize we experience the grace of God. That's good. Yeah. And with unbelievers, that can be hard because the other person may not be tracking that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and so you recognize, what can I do so that their experience of me yeah. is something of the grace of God? That's good. So that's a big part of it for me. Just edit yourself. Yeah. Remember what you're there for. You're not there to debate. Yeah. You're there and you're not necessarily there to have this person change you. Right. You're there so that at the end of the conversation there's an awareness that God's grace was at work in their conversation. That's good. Yeah, it's and what you're hitting on there is the um people don't need the glory of me. Yeah. Is what you what you just preached yeah. just a, a few minutes ago of just cuz that's what it ultimately is. Yeah. When we're getting offended, when we are saying, "Oh, I just need to say this." Why? <laughs> It's because I need this person to view me a certain way. I need this person to know that they're wrong and that my thoughts are more important and that yeah. that my feelings, that my emotions around this matter. And uh, we can get fired up and it's, it's just that glory of me. And it's like, okay, what does it look like for me to humble myself and make sure the glory of God is the thing that is of utmost importance in this conversation? Yeah. And I think one thing to, to note is we treat every... Oftentimes we can treat every conversation around race, justice, ethnic harmony, those kinds of things with people that we disagree with as if we have to say everything in this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. And one, that, that it doesn't make sense for a number of reasons because we're, we're supposed to be building a foundation, building on the foundation of the friendship that we ought to already have and building on the unity and reconciliation that we've achieved, that Christ has achieved for us. And, and from that, it's going to be a long journey of walking together in love. Like I shouldn't want to just get it all out in the first conversation and never have to deal with it again. It's like, no, this is like, like unity is difficult. Like unity is a long journey in which we are walking together in love, uh, gritting our teeth together, bearing with one, like bearing with one another is not like we're frolicking through a forest, mm -hmm. um, holding hands and shouting, everything is perfect. <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. it's, we have to get into difficult conversations. We have to have that's these a, things. That's a weird image. <laughs> I was, yeah. You don't regularly frolic through <laughs> through the woods with, with people you disagree like the, with? the Lego movie or something. <laughs> everything is awesome. Everything's, I don't know what's going on in your head. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things going on in my head. But it's that, um, it's like, no, this is difficult, but I'm, I'm here for this because you know, that's the whole idea of unity and diversity. We are hoping to grow each other together, grow with each other in love and not win an argument. So I think there's a sense as, as, as believers, we should be marked 
by this idea that the amount we don't know is huge. And why don't we let other people do the work to help us understand? That should posture us to listen. I want to hear. I want to hear because this is a life learning journey for me. It's not a get the point thing. And I think sometimes, it, you know, the way it, play, it, it bounces back into a, a white population that wants to know about it is we only want to know a certain amount. Yes, exactly. Yes. Enough to figure it out. Right. And now we're good. And move on. And move on. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's, I think it's part of his recognizing, no, as believers, if we really love each other, love other people, we got to go deeper than that. Hmm. We got to be affected. That's good. Yeah. And, and that requires humility. Yeah. <laughs> in, or, in order to do that, it requires yeah. like, okay. It won't happen without humility. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, 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 if you're, again, if you're approaching the conversation out of a sense of, of guilt yeah. Yeah. and wanting yeah. to pacify your own conscience. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great that point. That is not going to produce right. yeah. what we're talking about. You know, no. and I think there's a lot out there in, in, the, in the world about white guilt mm-hmm. and, and some of it's not great, but, but there's something true about that where there's a phenomena of sin in a lot of people's hearts where, the, where we can approach the conversation not with the goal of prizing the other person's perspectives, looking for the best in what they're saying, making sure they feel loved, but rather actually approaching it so that we can put this to the side and not have to feel shame yeah. over the topic. Um, so I think that's just a vital thing, especially for myself that I've had to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, teaching in, uh, in Philly for a number of years where I was, you know, one of the only white people there and uh, embedded in a culture where, where we were talking about these things a lot. Uh, I, I often found my heart rising to defend myself in ways that uh, really was not humility. Um, that's not to say that you can't, you know, say I don't think that's true of myself or, or whatnot or, or stand for, for truth and, and things like that. But there, it's important for us to know that with the sinfulness of our hearts and the deceptiveness of our pride that we're going to drift towards sort of uh, a self-atonement in these conversations and want to absolve ourselves and make that the whole goal of, of talking. As a black person involved in these conversations, Typically, the response has been for me to shut up. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't had a place to speak. Yeah. I haven't had the right to defend myself. I've had to justify and convince people of the realities of things that I'm experiencing. Yeah. And so, but the response then is ought not to be, okay, I've shut up for so long. Now it's time for you to shut up. Yeah. The, the response, the Christian humble response needs to be, okay, there is no way you are going to offend me more than I've offended God. There's no way I can offend you more than you've offended God. Mm-hmm. We are at an even playing field here and let's discuss this and let's listen to one another and let's grow together in this. Um, but I think uh, uh, one thing that's always been been helpful for me is remembering the promises associated with humility. Um, and that's like, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Happy are the are the poor in spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there's the kingdom of, of heaven, and you just have the ideas of God opposing the proud, giving grace to the humble, and you know the the broken and contrite spirit being the fragrant offering to God. Um, so just just being able to frame humility not as a a self-flagellation that's horrible and you know I just have to like kind of beat myself up all the time but rather thinking of it as beauty and as something that's um, producing a, a, a certain and abounding joy uh, in my soul is something that's, that's helped be sort of uh, worldview shaping for me. Um, so that I'm not just looking at conversations and just beating myself up over them, but, but really just saying, oh, this is one of the most glorious ways to live. Yeah is to be humble. I'm going to be more satisfied, content, and more of a pleasant person to be around. A better marriage, a better father, all these things uh, are going to abound in blessing and happiness if I seek humility and being